Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut is, up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... Shut I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. And I have a correction to make really briefly up top. In our last episode, I referenced a moment from, well, I said that it was from Clueless when it is, in fact, from Scary Movie parodying Clueless. I actually, um, I guess I have the parody so burned in my brain that I believe the parody to be the authentic work. No disrespect to Jane Austen, Amy Heckerling, um, Donald Faison, etc. Lover of Clueless. But I will say I really do love Scary Movie and I actually probably have seen Scary Movie more but Clueless is a superior film, but they are both important works in the canon of cinema. But enough about that. It is September, which means New York Fashion Week is coming. We are uh, a month out from season two of The White Lotus. We are days away from Leah Michelle making her return to The Great White Way in Funny Girl. Um, I'm sure there's a slew of other notable things happening this month, uh, both pop culturally and in your life, no doubt. And uh, I am excited. I feel like this has been a particularly lengthy summer. Um, I imagine I say that every September, but, you know, I'm in this one, and so it feels relevant to now. But I, I don't know. Like, when I think back upon... Um, memories from May, they feel very far gone. But then I also think sometimes like people on Twitter will be like, can you believe there was one going around recently being like, can you believe the Brandy and Monica versus uh, was two years ago? And it's like, yeah, for the most part, most anniversaries, it's like, yeah, I understand. Like time, um, despite the fact that it is linear, uh, our memories make certain events seem a lot, you know, closer and others not so much. So yeah, I mean, like, can I believe it is September? Yes, but it's felt like a long time coming. And and I'm excited because most gay people, we we drink iced coffee year round. I'm not among them. I do, I, I, yeah, well, actually, no. I do drink iced coffee all year, but I do like hot coffee in the winter, particularly as like a wake up, you know what I mean? So like sort of like, you know, um, you know, warm me up because it, it's warm, you get it. Um, but... One thing I really look forward to as the temperature starts changing 
I, I went to Blue Bottle Coffee the other day. I thought I would treat myself. I won't do it again. But, you know, I typically, I have a, a uh, I won't go over $5 when it comes to coffee. Um, I'm declaring that despite the fact that as I say it, I'm like, hmm, there's quite a few occasions when I have, but I try not to. For instance, um, there's a Cafe Kitsune down the street from me, which is like, it's nearing $7 for an iced coffee. And like, I won't even entertain that. So Blue Bottle is past the threshold of what I will spend. But yesterday I was, you know, feeling adventurous. And I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll splurge on a Blue Bottle iced coffee, which they put in a hot coffee container. And then they put sort of like um, the same ice that you would get with fountain soda. And the thing about iced coffee when it comes to the coffee to ice ratio, it's really important because if you get too much ice, that is area that could be filled with iced coffee. And I know for a lot of regular iced coffee drinkers out there listening, you might be like, there are places that it feels purposely fill the cup up with ice to withhold you from the already too expensive coffee. But in the case of Blue Bottle, if you have these small little ice cubes, they are more prone to melt easily, especially in summer heat, which is bringing this back to why I'm bringing it up. I'm excited that the weather is cooling down. Ice melts quicker in the summer. This is, you know, Isaac Newton taught us that. I don't know whoever it was, whoever taught us about weather. And so these small little cubes in my Blue Bottle melted right away. I like a strong coffee. Can you believe it? And so these iced coffee, all of a sudden I just have very watered down iced coffee in a hot coffee cup. Now on the one hand, I'm kind of like, well, this is a cool signature, right? Everyone else does, a, a you know, the standard iced coffee plastic. And here they are sort of, is it subversive? I don't know. But in the end, I was like, this was expensive and not good. And then after a while, the um, the paper of the, of the cup started to, you know... Um, kind of get wavy. You know, that happens with paper straws, right? It's like why a lot of people, myself included, don't really fuck with paper straws. It's like either give me a regular straw or give me no straw. I like those bottles that they currently have where you can just sip right from the top. The issue with those sometimes is they aren't able to close at all. Anyway, that's a longer conversation, but I'm excited for fall to have my moments where I'm walking down the street with an iced coffee and it's staying cold. I think that's going to be a really exciting um, part of fall. Now, we mentioned her before, Leah Michelle. I do want to touch down on this very briefly because Leah Michelle recently did a um, sort of a, a new interview in the New York Times ahead of her debut in Funny Girl. And I think if, if I were to speculate, Leah Michelle has smartly so avoided most press opportunities uh, over the last two years. You get the impression that after everything happened uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, if you don't already know, I implore you to Google, but basically several of Leah's co-stars from over the years, some from Glee, some from Spring Awakening, came forward with varying allegations about Leah's workplace behavior. And Leah effectively got canceled on the internet. Now, as most of us know, it's like cancellations, that, that phrase, as time goes on, it means less and less. Um, but one could glean that, one could glean that Glee star Leah Michelle was taking some time away because Leah Michelle is one of those people, um, you could say for better or for worse, you'd probably say for worse. Some might say for better, those that have the mentality of like any press is good press. But Leah Michelle is the kind of person that no matter what she does, despite her efforts to 
not say anything that will make headlines, it'll make headlines. So you could tell any like person that's like kind of really reading into this piece gets the sense that Leah made great efforts to not have to address various controversies. Now, when I say various, on top of the ones I already referenced, there's all of the drama around her casting in Funny Girl. Again, I implore you to use your right to Google. So this piece, it's like you could just tell it's like she just wanted a piece that focused on her return to Broadway and that and the framing of that as some sort of triumph, which it is. That is part of the story. But within the piece, the one other thing that the writer chose to insert towards the very end was having Leah Michelle address a rumor that's been pervasive on online for years now. And the rumor is that Leah Michelle can't read. It is a joke. Um, I would say, if I were to percentage it out, I would say 95% of people that engage with Leah Michelle can't read discourse are aware of the fact that it is a joke. And then the 5% that believe it to be true, let them. It's not really harming anyone. So Leah Michelle addressed this rumor by saying that she had memorized all of her lines from Glee. Actually, let's pull up the exact quote so we get it right. Leah says, quote, I went to Glee every single day. I knew my lines every single day. And then there's a rumor online that I can't read or write. It's sad. It really is. I think often if I were a man, a lot of this wouldn't be the case. Now, I think that is a ridiculous comparison to make. Um, this idea that because she is being made fun of here, it's somehow related to her gender. I think that it's such an unjustified quote because this is such a bizarre instance of the fact that I think what this comes down to is people just like to hate on the internet um, and Leah Michelle is an easy target and her lack of sense of humor about all of this kind of underlines that very fact. And I also think that by her making this an issue of if I were a man, it's undermining real instances of issues in Hollywood in which this is perhaps the case. It makes me think about all of the drama going on with Olivia Wilde right now, of which again, <laughs> I implore that you Google, but that to me, um, that is a bit of a gendered conversation, right? Because she is one of only a handful of female directors working uh, at, at the level that she's working. By the level, I mean with like the budget of the studio backing and whatnot. There's, uh, sadly, there is certainly not gender parity when it comes to directors in Hollywood. And so I do feel like there are conversations about Olivia that are rooted in misogyny. But this one about Leah Michelle not reading, there's simply no proof. And I wish for Leah that she could have, she doesn't have to be in on the joke because maybe she doesn't find it funny, but her, if you're going to address it, this was not the way. Then Jamila Jamil jumps in, posting on Instagram saying, I see a lot of people claiming a certain actress can't read, and then laughing at her. Whatever your issue with someone, and I don't know this woman or anything about her, but laughing at the idea of anyone not being able to read makes you look like a prick. An elitist, ableist bore. It's embarrassing for you, not them. I have to say again, no disrespect to Jamila Jamil, you're taking this way too seriously. It's like you're dignifying something that is just nothingness. This is just how the internet works. 
I think of so many instances in which like celebrities respond to something that's so not worth their time and in doing so legitimize it. So I really think this is an instance of either Leah should ignore it and just recognize that the internet's gonna be the internet or she should address it with some sort of sense of humor. She needs to team up with like a Vanity Fair or something and just they, instead of 73 questions like Vogue does, like, you know, Vanity Fair hands her 73 books and she and she literally paused through them, finds a random sentence and reads it. Like that would be so funny. But anyway, not to say I actually think Leah Michelle can't read. Jamila Jamil calling this ableist, like people that make fun of this ableist, again, it's like doing very, it's, it's troubling because it makes actual instances of ableism seem comparable here. That's what she's doing. She's drawing. It's like, this is an example of ableism. It's like, no, this is an example of people on the internet being dumb and you falling for it, which makes you look dumb. Ugh. I don't know. I just don't like it. But I'll tell you what I do like. I do like vacations. Um... <laughs> How's that for a transition? I went to P-Town. Um, I had never been. I get a very specific type of glance from a certain type of gay guy when I let this information out as though I should have been there previously, that I am wrong for not having been there, um, that I should not be proud of the fact that it is my first time. Um, but alas, it was. And I come back renewed. I come back... Is it hyperbolic to say a different person? Like, I do feel like a different person, but I also feel like maybe I jump to such language because I'm just so extreme because I don't have, I can't sort of like augment to find a, a way to describe something that's not so full-throated, you know? Like, I have to come back a changed person. I can't just be like, oh my God, I had the best trip. Or I would be like, I had the best trip ever, because it has to be like some sort of milestone. And yet it was. So just to like set this up briefly, we planned this trip months and months ago to celebrate my best friend Kevin's 40th birthday. Now, my best friend Kevin is like distinctly not online, like lives in the middle uh, of nowhere with his partner, Matt. And Kevin and I have a funny friendship in that we group we first met about 10 years ago um and be, like we're just instantly inseparable um so much of like who i am as a person today um i think comes from kevin kevin was sort of in many ways like when we first met fulfilled more of an older brother like sort of role and then like over time it's like morphed into a best friendship, but there's 10 years between us and I think it shows. And I think um, in the best way possible, I just like, I when I have to make a, an important decision in life, I always check with Kevin and he's such an interesting best friend for me because we just are not, we don't, well, on the surface we have much in common, but we really have very little in common. And I think that I'm grateful for it. But anyway, this was his 40th birthday. Oh, I should mention the two. I mean, we've run two marathons together. And the reason why I bring that up is because that means that we trained for two marathons together. And there was a time in our lives when like, you know, so much of our early friendship was predicated on partying. We used to like go out I don't know, like five, six days a week. It's funny because in my college years in New York, I really didn't go out. I was much more of like a 
hang out in the dorm room and watch old episodes of The Hills. And then when I hit 21, I met Kevin and sort of began my journey in New York City nightlife, which it's not that it was like late, but it was later than some. And so, so much of my early 20s was spent, you know, doing the party scene, going out, meeting people, having a great time with him. And then in my mid-20s, which would have been his mid-30s, he sort of decided to, you know, do the thing that people often do, which is that they sort of say, okay, I've had enough of this. Uh, I want to pursue activities that are less predicated on drinking and drugs. And I was sort of like more than happy to go on that journey. And so we started running together and and training for these marathons. Um, we did the 2017 and the 2019 it sort of unlocked a new phase of our friendship because suddenly we would go on these really long runs together where we are talking throughout them, um, but we're also releasing endorphins through running and then having this like long shared experience that culminates in an accomplishment, right? Like when you finish a, a long run, especially when you're marathon training, when you start to pass like eight mile runs and you're getting into like your 10, 12s, 14s, you get emotional. Like you get emotional during the run sometimes. I remember it was right before the 2017 marathon we were doing. So you have like two really, I think maybe two or three, really, really long runs before the marathon. You have a a 20 mile and a 22 mile. Now a marathon, for those of you that don't know, is 26.2 miles. You will not do up to that until the marathon, but you will go up to 22 miles, which I don't know about you, I think that is an incredibly long run and it's just a training session. And so I remember... We decided to do it in the, at night because when you get into 22 mile runs, they take hours. So whereas you can do a lot of your training just, you know, before work, after work, it starts to get a little bit more complicated when you get closer to the actual marathon because you have to dedicate a lot of time, right? Um, and not only to the actual run itself, but to the recovery, which is its own conversation, which we won't get into. But anyway, so we had a 22 mile run ahead. I was living in the East Village at the time. Kevin came and met me. We started uh, from my apartment, which was on 7th Street and 2nd Avenue. We went east to the river. Then we went down and under the island of Manhattan. And we went up to about 40th Street on the west side, somewhere around there where that that giant ship is. Um, I don't get that ship. I went there once and I was like, okay. Anyway, but so we go, we get to that ship. We, we turn around. We go back down. And then I think around Chambers Street, we find our way... Uh, we cross town at that point. We go into this, into through, through Manhattan. We find our way onto the Brooklyn Bridge, I want to say. Yeah, I think it was the Brooklyn Bridge. Go over the Brooklyn Bridge. And then at that point, we we go down in straight into Prospect Park. And we begin doing a, a loop around Prospect Park. Because our plan was to end at his apartment. He lived in Fort Greene at the time. Also, let me just tell you, like strategizing these runs when you get into like, you know, the teen, the late teens and the early 20s, it's really hard because this city, it, it's not designed for runners, right? I mean, this is a city for subways and for cars. Uh, but anyway, so we're in Prospect Park and I just have this memory like seared in my brain. And the reason why I think it's notable is like, I don't have a lot of mem- you know, do you ever have a memory around something that's so specific in your mind, but it's like, ultimately kind of inconsequential. So it's like, you shouldn't have access to this level of specificity of the memory. 
because like it wasn't a milestone, but then you're kind of like, well, because I have the memory so, so, you know, stuck in there, is there more to glean from it much later? And I think there is. That's why I'm talking about it right now. But I remember this one point, I just started to feel like I couldn't go anymore. This happens all the time when you're running, you know, no matter how, even if you're not a distance runner, where it's just like, you feel like there's no more gas left in the tank. But when you're training for a marathon, like you, you have to finish. Like, it, I don't know. That's how I felt. At least I felt like I had a 22 mile. I wasn't going to quit. And I just remember this moment of stopping um, midway through. I, I think at that point we were probably about like 20 miles in. We were really on the tail end. I couldn't go anymore. And I stopped and I just started crying. And I remember Kevin stopping and waiting for me. And I just remember breathing waiting and then after a few minutes feeling ready and we continued on and finished it's not a great story as i'm saying this to you but i just i remember that moment and it felt so transformative in our friendship because i guess what i'm taking away from it as i like sort of you know in, <laughs> speaking it to you right now and wondering why am i bringing this up i don't know it fortified the fact that kevin will wait for me because i always knew that i'd wait for kevin you know but Kevin will wait for me. And it meant a lot to me because, I don't know, if I were him, I would have been like, I'm, I'm going to finish. Because at that point, he didn't know if I was going to finish, right? I'm telling you, me crying, I would run if I were him. Run away. But he didn't. And so I've just always been really appreciative of that. Okay, so getting back to the story that, you know, that I led with. So we're going to P-Town. It's Kevin's 40th birthday. I should also mention, Kevin has moved upstate, as I said. And so... We went from being the kind of friends that hung out four or five, six days a week to I now see Kevin about two or three times a year. Kevin is one of those people, you will encounter them in life, uh, if you are a New Yorker, where they move away from the city, um, sometimes far away, in his instance, a few hours, and they suddenly sort of have this distaste for the city that makes them, you know, I thought he was going to move upstate, but he'll come back all the time. No, no, no. Kevin does not like coming to the city to the point where he will come in sometimes for a dinner and will leave that night. Like he cannot bear a night in the city. It's ridiculous. Um, but it's relevant because this was going to be an opportunity on this trip. It was going to be like a prolonged amount of time that we were going to be able to spend together. Add to that, I'm there with my boyfriend, Billy, our friends, Nicholas and Simon also came, and then our friends, Clayton and Tim. Clayton is one of Kevin and I's oldest friends who now lives in Los Angeles. We see one another very infrequently because that's what happens when you have friends on the opposite coast. So we have this weekend in P-Town. It is transformative. As I said, I'm changed. It was just perfect. I don't know, I don't know about you, but like, Vacations for me, I do not associate vacations with relaxation at all, though my activities might, uh, you know, be, you know, standard vacation activities. They just always feel scheduled. I don't know if they feel stressful, but like, I don't know. I think it's pretty common to not come back from vacation feeling rested. I don't know. Maybe you do, but I don't. This was the first time that I, we went for a week, I would wake up every day without a plan for the day. And some mornings I would just get on my bike. And mind you, for those of you that don't know me, I did not learn how to ride a bike until my mid-20s. So like, I am not someone who like 
knows the life of waking up and getting on a bike. However, I did have this thought during this trip to P-Town where we were on bikes for much of it, where I was like, God, my youth would have been fundamentally changed had I gotten on the bike because I would have had so much freedom. Like my town, I know it's like my, my small town, but still my town would have completely been opened up to me had I been less reliant on a car. And it was all right there. Like we had bikes in the garage. It's just like, I just, I, I think sometimes, God, if I had just wasn't so afraid of the bike, had gotten on the bike, the places I could have gone. I mean, Dr. Seuss, he was onto something. So P-Town, went whale watching. I tried lobster for the second time. Pretty good, pretty good. I'm not gonna, I don't think I'm gonna get to a place where I can like wolf down, you know, a lobster roll. That's like, that feels like a lot of lobster, but I'm comfortably in a place now where I can have a bite of lobster. By the way, I don't eat seafood. So yeah, believe me, I've gotten shit for it my whole life, but I don't eat seafood. I don't eat seafood and I couldn't ride a bike, but I now can have a bite of lobster and I can ride a bike. I am 33 years old and I am a bike rider. A little bit nervous at times. I don't do well when there's oncoming traffic because I still feel like, like I, I'm not at a point in my bike riding journey where I can let go of the handlebars. Kevin was telling me, it's like, he's like, oh, when you're going up a hill, like kind of stand up on the bike. I'm like, girl, you do that. I cannot do that. Like my weight distribution, my my sense of balance is not quite there yet, but we'll get there. But like, yeah, I don't really like trust myself on a bike so much. If we're going, if when we were moving in packs of eight, I preferred to be in the back, right? But then sometimes I'd be in the back and I'd lose the group. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But we just did so much. We biked everywhere. There was the dunes. There was Boy Beach. There was, you know, running into friends new and old on the street. There was tea. Um, there was so much to do there. I, I really had so much fun. And I got a little bit emotional when we came back because I loved this group. You know, we never hung out, the eight of us. I, I For me, group trips feel scary because, you know, there's a distinct balance that you need, right? It's like, does everyone have the same idea of how to vacation? Like we even ran into stuff at the beginning where it's like, I wanted to do a lot of grocery shopping and Kevin was like, no, no, no. I plan to go out for every meal. And I'm like, girl, we have a house with a kitchen. There's eight of us. The whole fun of having a house is that we can all have family meals together, which I was able to convince him to do so in the end. But I came back and I realized that like, this is not a group of people where we're going to like have a group text going. I mean, we have one that's like trip based and it's very like matter of fact. Like right now the, the group text is like checking in about squaring up on the payments for things. This is not a group that we're going to be in touch a lot. It's just, that's just not the kind of group that it is. I mean, I have so many friends that are like, just like me that are like texters or voice memos or whatnot, but that's not this group. And we had so much fun. And I was like, this is the memory. And so the work now is that we commit to doing this again next year. But it just made me not, it's not, it's not a sad story. It's not sad, but it just was like, you have all kinds of different friendships in life. And sometimes you have, you know, I, I hear about best friends all the time and they're like, you know, constantly in touch and they tell each other about every small detail. That's not my friendship with Kevin. We don't talk that often. And there's a, yeah, we're not like the, I'm not sending him memes. I have other friends that I would consider 
less, you know, just less significant friendships who I talk to, oh my God, so much more, you know? But, but Kevin is my best friend and just getting to spend that time with him to celebrate his 40th birthday, to be with his lovely partner, Matt. Oh my God. And there's this, this picture I have. He doesn't listen to this podcast, so he won't hear this, but there's this picture I took and it was just, I was standing behind them and it's just him and Matt. And we're walking along Commercial Street on P-Town, which is like, you know, the main road. And they're holding hands. And there's, you know, the the street is just sort of littered with pride flags or, I don't know. You take a picture in P-Town and show it to someone and they're going to be like, oh, okay, this is is gay, right? There's going to be some detail, uh, you know. Um, And it's just the most lovely photo. And I was like, wow, thinking upon our journey together and our days of partying and doing... I was going to say, God knows what. No, I know what. But just, you know, living and the way our lives have changed now and we're not as close as we used to be, I thought. But yeah, we are. It's just a different, it's a different kind of closeness that you develop. And I'm just so glad that we went on this trip together. It fortified so many friendships. It made me understand more why people go and travel in large groups. And I feel like that sadness is not, it's not a it's not a bad thing to be sad. I'm sad because I had so much fun and I'm sad that it's going to be a long time until we get to do it all again. But I'm glad that we'll do it again next summer. Like I feel like this was the start of a tradition. I remember my family, we didn't go like we didn't go on family vacations growing up. It just like wasn't part of our, you know, it wasn't something we did. And I remember I think it was about seven years now, my parents pitched the idea of us going to Duck, North Carolina with some of our other cousins for a family vacation. We did it. We had a great time. And and from there, we've gone on family vacations every summer ever since. Um, we did not go this past year because my dad is sick, um, but we will go. We'll either make that one up or, you know, we'll start up again in 2023. But family vacations have become a thing that we do. We started a tradition late in life. And so why am I, why, what is, what is this all for? What is this conversation about? I think what I've realized is that like, you can always start a new tradition at any juncture and it's hard, right? It's hard to start new traditions. It's hard to build new habits, right? Like, and, and with the intention of like, you know, you have to do it once. You can't say like, oh, we're going to start a tradition. You try, you do the the first one. And if it goes well, that's when you get the sign off to do it again. I think, I think we got the sign off here. But this is a start of a new tradition. And it instills the fact that like these friendships from long ago, they grow and they change. You find each other. You learn more about one another. You don't always, they're not always the same. Like, Kevin is sober now, and I don't party like I used to. We are not going to make the kind of memories that we made when I was in my 20s and he was in his his 30s, but he's now in his 40s, I'm in my 30s, and we'll make new memories, and they're different, and they're just as good, and I'm excited about this new tradition. I started (laughs) looking at properties in P-Town, because, like, this is very, again, I'm an extremist, so it's, like, not not that kind of extremist. Like, like the, not, you know what I mean. I started looking at... (laughs) properties in p-town i'm like because i'm like immediately i left there and i was like i've got to go back and because i want to go back i've got to buy a place right because it's like oh my god that just makes sense it doesn't make sense especially when you look at the property value there oh my god but i will be back there next summer i appreciate all the p-town gave me maybe it didn't change my life but it 
It filled a tank that I didn't know needed filled. I don't want to say it was on empty, but like, I don't know. It did something for me. I, I, I'm grateful for that time. Those walks with my friends getting in the water there. I'm not really one to like get into an ocean. Um, but I did multiple times and, uh, I just, yeah, I'm really, I feel very renewed and it's funny because I, Murray Bartlett was on the podcast last, uh, two weeks ago, as you, as you know, listening. And I asked him about P-Town cause he had sort of told me about this magical place called P-Town. And it's funny when you hear about a thing and then get to experience the thing for yourself and it completely checks out, right? I mean, better that than, than the alternative, um, but anyhow, um, I'm excited for today's interview. I've wanted to interview this guest for a very long time. They are so talented and, and so deserving of the incredible year that they've had. And, uh, I'm excited for you to get to know them without any further ado, the immaculately talented Tomas Matos. Shut up, Evan. They are among the breakout stars of the smash summer rom-com Fire Island, earning rave reviews for their role as Keegan in the ensemble film. Once asked if they were a car, what car would they be? They said, quote, I would be a Ferrari because I'm an expensive bitch. They made their Broadway debut in Diana the Musical and play the titular role in the short film Ezra, the story of a chronically ill dancer who finds their tranquility in nature while on a camping trip with their boyfriend. During the pandemic, they launched Empanada Poppy, a budding business that brings their love of empanadas, culinary skills, and bringing smiles to everyone's faces to life. I could tell you all the ways you are going to fall in love with them, but enough from me and more from them. A talent whose name you need not only know, but also remember. The great and fabulous Tomas Matos. Shut up, Evan! So you mentioned that you just moved to the Chelsea neighborhood. I'm wondering, can you give me a temperature check of Chelsea in 2022? I feel like... As far as neighborhoods go, the last time I checked in with Chelsea legitimately was probably like in the Sex and the City era. And so I'm wondering, what is the state of Chelsea? It's still giving what needs to be gave. I was just, so I'm subletting. So I'm subletting around the city, you know, trying to figure out where I want to make my own nest. That isn't Staten Island, which is where home is for me. Um, Because, you know, Staten Island is trash. But I just came from the Upper East Side and leaving my apartment on the Upper East Side, you know, as the non-binary fairy that I am, it is not the, like the stairs be staring, bitch, you know. Um, But when I step out onto the street in Chelsea, it gives very kind, it gives very like, yes, it gives claps, you know, very, the energy that I think that I prefer. I just had my first hookup and it was someone who has literally never been closer in proximity to me from Grindr. Um, he lives right next door on my floor. The digging of the downs was definitely, you know, I would say it was nine out of 10. Had it been lower, it would have been like, well, what was this all for? But it went well. So it's like, why look back with any regret? Bitch, it would have been a mess if it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, You've had an incredible summer, not only with the release of Fire Island, but really becoming amongst the breakout cast members of this film. And I'm wondering, do you feel different in a post-Fire Island world? Yes. (laughs) And I think, like, I have always been what I like to consider, I have always been that girl. And when I say that girl, I mean that G-W-O-R-L, not that G-I-R-L, you know what I'm saying? Um, But... 
now with like, and especially with, I think being so similar to who Keegan is as a character um, and, and, and being so, so lucky enough to put so much of myself into the work that I, I put into Fire Island, people have, have been exposed to me through Keegan. What I love about you in this role is that you're basically embracing the fact that, no, there's a great amount. Not only are you happy, you feel lucky to be able to play who you are on camera. Talk to me about like what appealed to you about playing a role so similar. For me, that is the, the reason why I love um, to act is to find how to put myself into the work that I'm doing. I, I could have probably done a different direction of, of Keegan when I was like figuring out. I remember like when I got the sides and I was like getting ready to, to audition. I think that's what I did the first time. And then they asked me to retake um, and they were like, we want you. I remember the casting asking me to do it more like Empanada Papi, <laughs> which is um a little Instagram business that I started during the pandemic in which I would make cooking tutorials about how to make empanadas. Hey, what are you doing? Uh, oh, welcome to my kitchen. Tonight, we're gonna be making empanadas, baby, but Goya is chopped. So we're gonna make our sesson from scratch. And I literally, it would be like, you know, audio description, like TikTok, like all of like, insert words here and all that shit but it was like me being me the casting kind of helped me route bringing myself into the role which I think is is something that I'm extremely grateful for and I don't know like with this being my first you know feature film and first like like huge role I think I might be spoiled so I'm excited and kind of nervous to see what's coming next <laughs> and and if I can still do what I did in Fire Island you know with the rest of my career you know, this makes me think about, I was listening to an old Anne Heche interview that she gave with Fresh Air, and she played these twins on Another World, the soap opera back in the day, and the interviewer asked her, I think it was Terry Gross, Terry Gross said, you know, which was easier for you, uh, playing the good twin or the evil twin? And she said, both of them, she was like, I was able to bring myself to both of these various parts and inform my identity within them. So it wasn't like one was more me and one was the one wasn't. It was like, no, they're both me and I have to find different ways to bring who I am to these characters that are polar opposites, but who are both me. And so your response reminded me of that quote. Now, I want to know what your relationship is like with Fire Island and has it changed at all since the film came out? Ooh, yes. <laughs> um, so I, I remember like, like in high school, I went to high school in, in Lincoln Center. So like, I am a city girl and, and I've always known of Fire Island just from like, you know, just hearing about it. Um, but I didn't go for the first time until I was like freshly 21. I remember going with a group of my girls who I consider like my aunties. So, and it was also the first time that I was dosing. Do what you want with that. <laughs> Um, which was an experience in itself, bitch. So it just, you know, many a firsts for my first time on the island. Um, and I had been back prior to filming a few times after that. Um, the most recent before starting filming was I was a dancer for the Pines party. And I remember the day before the, 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 the day before the Pines party was, I remember getting the call that I had booked the movie. Um, and I remember just being so gagged and it kind of felt very kismet that like I was 
you know, dancing as the Mad Hatter in fucking Alice in Wonderland for the pints party um, with like, you know, Joel in the audience and like the director was there, like they were scouting. Now I like it, every time I'm there, it feels like um, I'm a Disney princess in Disney World. And it is, it is hilarious, but yeah, there is definitely a difference. And I still have, you know, um, I think with me being sober now, I have my own like different experience when going to the island because, you know, I am not like taking a deep dive into the party of it all. Um, So that is also another aspect that is very different for me as a person, as you know, as a queer person who goes to the island to enjoy it. It is definitely different from then when I was, you know, that party girl prior to filming. I think there's a perception from many people that one cannot be sober and enjoy Fire Island. And I think if anything, you're proving that that is not in fact the case. But like, do you feel like you are still able to go out there and turn up? Because the other thing is people will say, well, if you're sober on Fire Island, that means you're going to bed early and you sort of are having a more chaste experience. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. I am still that party girl. I've just realized that I don't need to be doing, you know, two day benders to be the party girl. I could still be the party girl, I think. But with being sober and with finding, you know, my sobriety, I have been able to know when my time is up, you know, and like when when I have hit the limit. And that might be sometimes at 10 p.m. Sometimes, bitch, that's at 4 a.m. and I'm still at the axis. Um, before we continue, I wanted to bring in the first of our guests today. Uh, one of your Fire Island co-stars has a question for you. Hi, Tomas. Oh, yay. Um, it's Bowen, and I wanted to ask, because I've always wondered, since you give out so much joy and love and energy to so many people, how do you replenish it for yourself? Oh my God, that just made my heart so happy. Um, but I like to consider myself a habitual girl. Like, you know how like, Sant- like so Santana is the material girl. I am definitely like a habitual girl in which like I wake up every morning, I, I have my coffee, I sit and meditate, I have my journal, I do my mantras. My favorite way is playing video games now. <laughs> I'm a little gamer, <laughs> which is like, you know, one of my favorite ways to kind of detach from 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 the world um and and kind of like you know just live my life through a video game I wish I were like more of a reader like I like I feel like being being like into books is so cunt like to be like oh my god yes like I, I have I have so many books that I read I think that is just like something that I I aspire to be but I'm just I don't know why I'm not that girl I think it's because I have a short attention span and I can't really, you know, like, I can't really be into a book like that unless it's a really good book. Like, I'm really into The Untethered Soul right now by Michael Singer and it is very fab. Wait, so tell me, The Untethered Soul, I do not know about this book. What's one thing that you are taking away from this book? The the thing that that is sticking with me the most right now is, you know, the the untethering of one soul and and the the idea that like we are in this vessel in this body um but we are also the person our our um you know our perception is the is the soul watching the body and watching the experience that we are living on this earth um and that 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 higher seat of of consciousness and that higher seat of self is definitely something that i think has released a lot of the stress and the and the 
the, you know, the inner turmoil that happens in my brain sometimes with, you know, thoughts running amok. So that is definitely like the number one thing that I think I have been able to take from the book. Um, I really want to, I think my next tattoo is going to be um, two, two words on both of my legs, on, on, on both of my big chunky meaty thighs. It's going to say relax and release. Michael, Michael repeats that a lot in the book, like relaxing into yourself and releasing the stress that, that, that sometimes happens when we get stuck in our own minds. Um, but I've been trying to figure out, and maybe you can help me um, figure this out. Like, I'm like, do I get it tatted so that I can read it on my legs? Or do I get tatted the opposite way so that other people can read it so that it's kind of like, you know, like I'm, I'm sharing the message or is it more of a reminder for myself? I don't know. I am of the mindset that you get it for yourself, specifically in this instance, too, because as much as you want to, like, disseminate that mindset to those that come in contact with you, I feel like you're the person that contends with you on the daily. And anyone in your ether who wants to seek out that advice, they just have to shift their perspective. <laughs> We're speaking a lot right now about mindfulness. Was there a moment throughout filming where you looked around and knew that you were in the right place doing the right thing without any questions or without any fears? You know, one of the biggest impacts was the dinner table scene in which Margaret is telling that story at the head of the table. So there I was, on my hands and knees, in the middle of the meat rack, trying to use the light on my flip phone <laughs> to scan this chick's pussy for crabs. Oh, Aaron, we're literally eating right now. It was one of the first times that we were all kind of together and it was, you know, a very, it, it was an intimate moment. Um, and just being able to look across at the table and, and look to the side and see all these people that, that I have looked up to for a, for a very long time. Um, you know, Nick Adams being across the table from me. And I remember like when I was 18 years old playing a fucking ensemble member in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert on Norwegian Cruise Line. And, and, you know, just like being in awe of Nick Adams as Felicia in, in Priscilla on Broadway, like, and then just sitting across from him, I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> um, but it felt, it felt right. Um, and the second one was the last day of filming in which it was, we were doing, we were shooting the party scene, the underwear party at, um, at the Ice Palace. That part of the scene I am supposed to be rolling, um, which was a bit triggering, which I didn't realize would be, but it was a bit triggering for me um, as someone who is sober and be having to play like rolling um, with that being, you know, the, my drug of choice back in the day, it was a very stressful moment, um, but I found solace and, and a space to be able to speak about it openly with everyone. And they really like, they got a bitch together. Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. The hot days of summer mean only one thing. I need a can of something. And not just any something, a can of can. Can is the queer-founded, cannabis-infused social tonic that is the summer beverage I cannot be without. Each can is made from five ingredients. Fresh juice, herbs, agave nectar, cannabis extract, and water. The fresh juice is no BS either, with sourced ingredients like Sicilian lemons, Fijian ginger, and Massachusetts cranberries. 
yum. My favorite flavor, you ask? Well, I'm currently a pineapple jalapeno kind of gal, but a cloudy apple rhubarb light always manages to hit the spot too. And look, it may not be the season of giving, but that doesn't mean you can't receive. Shut Up Evan listeners can receive 50% off their first order of can. Yes, that's 50% off. Go to drinkcan.com and use promo code ERK50. That's drinkcan.com, D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com and use promo code ERK50 for 50% off. Let summer go to your head by sipping on some cans. And we're back. So let's go back a little bit to your early life. You know, you talked about the fact that you went to school in Lincoln Center, born in Staten Island. Do I have that correct? Born and bred, girl. Now, you threw a little bit of, I don't know, shades the word or an all-out attack on Staten Island earlier. Uh, What is your relationship like with Staten Island? Are you a proud Staten Island person? Like, I truly don't know. (laughs) Like, no shade at all to the island, but like... You can get to the island for free, bitch. So growing up in Staten Island, was the aspiration always, how do I get out of here? I think so. I think like from freshman year of high school, I was traveling back and forth. But I remember just like always being like, I don't really think I fit in here. And I think, you know, my my living situation at home at the time was definitely not helping. Um, like, you know, that is like the predominantly red borough. And... I am nowhere near the right. So I feel like it just, it was bound for me to leave that island. You know, I'm thinking about the Pocahontas song just around the river bend because in a place like Staten Island, it's not like you're some small town and you have no awareness of the outside world. With Staten Island, it's like just across the river is that big old island that we've all heard of and that you now occupy. The whole time where you sort of, was there a time when you remember realizing the world is bigger than Staten Island? I think it was like eighth grade, like around the time where I was just figuring out or just hearing about what LaGuardia was. Um, that was when I was like, oh, I don't have to stay on this island. Like I I can leave. Um, I do feel like there's a part of me that feels like since I am, you know, birthed on Staten Island that I have this duty to to create a space for someone like myself to be able to, you know, live there unabashedly and like unapologetically. Um, And I do think that that is in my future somehow, whether that's like being able to, you know, be an outlet for others that are like myself that are on the island that do feel suppressed. The the goal was to always take just around the riverbend, get my ass on that boat and be the Staten Island ferry that I am. So to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, I'm wondering what life was like before eighth grade when it sounds like the world really opened up. You know, you use the word suppressed, for instance. And what was your early life like? Oh, my God. It was it was best ball, <laughs> to say the least. So I come from I grew up with a single mom um, who was very religious, very Christian um, and. It was me and my two older sisters and my mother, and that was it. Um, And working class family, um, really just like, you know, living, (laughs) surviving. Um, And I I always felt like, you know, I had, I had something, I I had something to do. There was a purpose. Um, And I don't know whether, whether or not that was because I always felt so suppressed and, 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 
and like, you know, made to feel smaller than who I actually was that, you know, made like, like forced me to burst out of my, my, my own shell that I think was created by, you know, my family. Um, side note, me and my family, I think our relationship is a lot different than what it was then. Um, specifically with my mother who like, you know, was, a uh, a good reason for a lot of the, the, the trauma in my life. What is your relationship like with forgiveness? So my mom kicked me out when I came out to her when I was a junior in high school. Um, and since then, our relationship is a lot different. Um, but it took, it took a, a, a lot of time um, for me to be able to forgive her for what she, she kind of like, you know, did to me, not only with the act of kicking me out, but with the acts of, of, you know, of trying to mold me into her, her, her child that she wanted me to be. She, she was working with the best of her abilities to that, to that extent of being a single mother with three kids, working a nine to five, you know, having to come home and cook for us and then do it all over again. And she has done a lot of growing just as I have done a lot of growing, um, honoring and acknowledging the work that people are doing to be better people is the first step in, I think, forgiveness. I mean, I am curious too, though, like uh, when you were first kicked out of your home, what are the immediate steps or actions that you took to find housing? How old were you at this point? Okay, so I was 16. And the reason why I currently live with my grandparents and my grandma and my grandpa, who are, you know, I think um, my, my caregivers, the, you know, the people that I live with on the island now, are my mom's parents. My mom kicked me out, but, my, but her parents were the ones who took me in. There's also an added layer on top of it that like now me and my mom, like my mother considers me her child now where um, back in the day she would consider me her son. And I think she has, she has been open and, and definitely um, interested in listening to my coming into experience as a non-binary individual. Whereas my grandparents, I think it's, it's a different conversation just because, you know, of, of the generation of it all. And like, and, and, and the, the language barrier of it all, like they are, um, English is their second language and Spanish itself is such a gendered language that like, when I'm like, no, you can refer to me as they, them, like my pronouns are, are they, them, theirs. My grandma's like, mm -mm, that doesn't make sense. You know, again, no. But that's such an interesting sort of moment in this, the discussion around generations, because it sounds like in that moment, your grandparents are not trying to disrespect your gender identity so much as they are wrapped up in their own sense of their language. And you are an outlier to the language that they understand or have access to. So in those moments, how do you sort of compartmentalize when someone is being transphobic versus being, I don't even like the word ignorant because that's not even necessarily the word. Sometimes people are just stubborn about the things that they know, but the way they're communicating it or expressing it, it's not rooted in a lack of acceptance of you or your gender identity so much as their limitations of understanding a world that is rapidly changing and sometimes their brains can't keep up. Yeah, I think you have to like, you know, give space for for the people who are very stuck in their own ways in in a way which is ignorance. Um, no shade. But like, you know, we have to we have to acknowledge the fact that 
it is, it does take work and it do take time. And some people just don't want to do that time or, or, you know, make an effort to, to do the work, which is okay, but no shade. That is now a barrier. And that is a wall that I have to put up in order to make my own sanity safe. Do you have a spidey sense at all that goes off when you meet someone and perhaps they might misgender you unintentionally and then versus someone who you get the sense from that initial misgendering that they're doing it out of malice, that they intend harm? Are you able to discern between the two early on about like what kind of person you're dealing with? Yes, but I also, um, I don't, I, I don't want, or I tend to not, I think this is just like the type of person that I am make assumptions about someone just because of the fact that they might misgender me. Um, it's just that like, you know, they might not know, especially I think um, with me being a habitual girl, you know, like I, I understand that we are creatures of habit. Like my sister, for example, um, she, she will still refer to me using he, him pronouns. And every time she does, I'll be like, Mm-mm, they, they, them, they are here, <laughs> you know, I will correct her. And she'll be like, my bad, like, I'm just, you know, if I'm not used to it. And that is like, that is, I, 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 I give you all the space in the world to be able to, you know, figure out how to, how to unlearn or how to, you know, uh, remove and deconstruct your own gender, gender ideas and, and gender bias in your own brain. Um, but it does come a time where I'm like, Come on, girl, get with the program, <laughs> you know. <laughs> a lot of trans people discuss the feeling of gender euphoria, which comes about when they begin to access the gender they are versus the gender they've always been told they were. And I'm wondering, as a non-binary person, if you've ever experienced something similar with regard to discovering you didn't identify within the gender binary and you found some sort of euphoria in that discovery. It happens every single day. Um, and I think it has something to do with not being on the island, which is sad to say, but I feel like, you know, the the stress and the burden that that I that I do feel with just, you know, leaving my house or leaving my bedroom, walking in front of my grandparents in a sports bra and a skirt, I don't feel when I'm in the city. Um, and and the feeling of freedom and and gender euphoria of being able to live my authentic self. Like right now for audio description, bitch, I look so cunt in a white sports bra, Calvin Klein sports bra, and some white baggy pants, honey. And I look cunt. And I feel like, you know, I went to Target and I went to, to Trader Joe's earlier. Um, and I felt, I felt correct. You know, I didn't feel suppressed. And the journey of finding, finding my own authentic self is not a linear one. There, there is space for, you know, this, the scariness of it all and the, and the frustration of feeling suppressed. And, and some days I might feel like, oh, I, I, I don't know if it's safe enough for me to be myself. Um, giving, honoring that and, and giving space for, you know, the, the, the roller coaster of it all. But I appreciate what you're saying about holding that space for those those other emotions, because I, I imagine one of the burdens of being a prominent non-binary person in the public eye is a feeling that you want to present this uh, this happiness and this strength and you want to be a pillar not only for other non-binary individuals, but for the LGBTQ plus community at large. 
and contending with the realities that we all go through difficult times and, and, you know, days in which we feel better about who we are than other days. And I think it's a, a difficult thing when you are a person in the public eye, finding that balance of wanting to be representation for others while also wanting to recognize your humanity and also instill in others the idea that you might look up to me and looking up to me does not mean that you are looking up to perfection. Uh, I'm a human being just like you are. 100%. When, when I am down and when it is a gloomy Monday and when I am feeling, you know, a bit, a bit stressed, um, that is just as, as, as authentic and as perfect as when it's a Friday and I'm going to an event and I look sickening bitch and I'm in my fucking, my black pumps, and heads are turning. It makes me just wonder how many people from generations past, had they had access to, perhaps it's just the language, but just this idea that I think a lot of people in the past, especially those within our community, but also those on the fringes of our community, uh, had they had that freedom that you're expressing, that idea of I don't need to be one thing, um, and who I am can be ever evolving. I just, I... Not only do I wish that upon the future generation, but I just wonder about our past generations. Had they embraced this fluidity of self, um, how many, not necessarily lives could have been saved, but certainly that, but also just how many lives could have been lived with so many less inhibitions. But I think that's like the, the beauty of evolution. We are what we are given in a way. Um, so it is our duty and our job as as individuals in the year 2022 to live as authentically as we can so that the next generation can do the same. And to your point earlier, it's like why things like they, them pronouns, the more we normalize that language within this generation and have some of those more difficult conversations with those from a previous generation or those that are more averse to the change, the more that we do that work now than in future generations, it's like, well, we've been using they, them for decades at that point. You know what I mean? So yeah, I definitely agree that it's like you put things into motion, you know, you, you put the seeds in the ground, as they say, and then, you know, you reap what you sow and hopefully we're sowing something good. Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we're back. Talk to me about your life in the ballroom scene as a member of the house of Miyaki Mugler. So, um... It's three o'clock. Sorry, that was my computer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a bitch has to keep on time. <laughs> um, I am in the house, the iconic international house of Miyaki Mugler. I am walking currently um, one of the newer categories, which is GNC face which is um, an up and coming category that is not traditionally known to be a part of ballroom. Um, I joined ballroom as what we consider a butch queen. Butch queens are male identifying um, figures in, in ballroom. Um, and I am no longer a butch queen, <laughs> just in my regular life. 
as stressful as it is, and I, I, I will only speak about this here because I know that like, you know, you are one of the girls and, and I know your audience is also queer, queer or queer allies. Um, so I know that we are a part of family and I can speak about this. Um, but with that being said, you know, ballroom is very traditional. And, and at one point, you know, you had the, the, the fact that it is um, traditionally known to be a very binary culture, being a femme queen or a butch queen is understandable because at the time when it was coming up, like, you know, passing was a legitimate like life or death situation. So that is why those categories are, are why they are. But, you know, we're like, like we've been talking about, like, we are evolving, it is 2022 and it is time for, you know, creating space and inclusivity for all genders and all, all identities. Um, so I am very happy to kind of be pushing that forward. You know, I think a lot of people think of ballroom as this community for people on the outskirts, right? For people that are looking to find a community who have not already found one, which for a great deal of time was queer people of color coming up in the 80s and 90s in New York City. That was sort of a, a hub. But what you're saying is that within that that community, because, you know, you, you use the word tradition, right? Traditions are established. I guess it's surprising to hear that non-binary categories would not have found their way in. How did those conversations work, especially when you're within a system that it was my understanding was sort of all about radical acceptance, um, but, but radical acceptance and tradition, they can come up against one another. 100%. I think... I've, I want to make it clear that, you know, we only talk about our issues within our family to our family, you know, and, and I think that is why, you know, I bring it up in, in a space like this, because I know that this is a safe space to talk about the issues within our own community, within our own family. Um, and they do sometimes butt heads, you know, but like the, the, the conversation of it all is how change happens. How do those conversations begin to happen in a place like that? I'm just wondering how you create institutional change in a place like the ballroom scene. So new categories come up um, all the time. Um, like there, there will be like normally performance and, or like there used to be like face, the face category face with performance. Like there are so many categories um, and it just is about, there is a Facebook group of GNC um, individuals in the ballroom culture um, who, who have kind of been, you know, pushing the idea that we are here and we would like, we would like our own category. Um, and then the people who organize balls, um, the houses that are organizing the balls, um, people within our own community, within the GNC um, category will reach out to the people who are who are throwing the balls and, and make sure and ask them and let them know that GNC people will be in attendance and we would like to walk a category that is made for us. And no doubt there are other young individuals that then see these new categories and feel, oh, there is a place for me in this scene. And so it can kind of uh, widen the scope of who is allowed into to these spaces. So that's very, very exciting. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on They Slash Them, which is a new slasher horror film set at an LGBTQ plus conversion camp, which is interesting. I thought the title was They Them, because it, but it's actually They Slash Them, which if you if you read into it, you can understand the 
I think there's some genius there. Um, I have to say the premise is quite intriguing on the surface, but the reviews have not been so kind. The New York Times wrote, they slash them wants badly to avoid offending anyone and takes pains to avoid any action that might be considered problematic. Well, the result is probably inoffensive, a horror movie without blood pumping in its veins. I have to say, I found they slash them to be really entertaining uh, misguided at times, but I love the idea of setting a horror movie in a conversion therapy camp. That's genius. My my reticence around this film was sort of like the who was making it, but it wasn't around who was cast. So I do think some inroads were made, but I still think we still, I have yeah, I, I I had some question marks coming out of it, but. Enough about my thoughts. I'm wondering your thoughts on they slash them. Well, I think the title alone, bitch, is so cunt. They slash them? <laughs> bitch, that is so good! Um, because I, too, was like, oh, I'm going to see a movie called They Them. Okay. Like, anyway, I digress. Enough about the title. <laughs> I mean, I remember, like, the first time I saw it, um, I remember just, just, literally being scared like i like the conversion camp alone of itself like without you know the blood and the gore bitch that's a spooky movie already that like i i enjoyed it some of you know the storyline was definitely it was giving oh i i already know the ending before the ending came you know um just i mean the title alone just <laughs> so good Speaking of they, them pronouns, Demi Lovato announced a few weeks back that she was readopting the use of she, her pronouns in addition to keeping they, them pronouns. This got a lot of initial backlash from some people online who saw this as a renouncing of her non-binary identity. I'm wondering what your reaction was to Demi's proclamation, which I do think notably was done in a kind of way in which she happened to be asked about it during an interview. She was not seeking attention for this decision. She simply changed the pronouns on her Instagram bio to include both she, her, they, them. So part of me feels as though this narrative uh, sort of ran away from her in a way that she did not uh, intend it to. Nonetheless, it did. Um, But as a non-binary person who uses they, them pronouns exclusively, uh, what was your reaction? I thought like, you know, more power to them. I think the the fact that that she could she could look inward and 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 see that, oh, maybe I maybe I am more than just than than one particular um, uh, group of pronouns and and add and add she her back into it, I think was iconic. I was like, more power to you, Demi, but I just feel like the the clickbait of it all that made it seem as if, you know, that like that they were they were <laughs> removing their non-binary finery. <laughs> I was like, that that that's not what's actually happening. I want to get your thoughts on one other uh, topic of interest. Uh, I'm wondering what you make of the latest Harper's Bazaar icons covers. We got four of them. The three notable ones being Amanda Gorman, Florence Pugh, and Bad Bunny. Bad Bunny is seen wearing a Louis Vuitton skirt on the cover. It's not the first time he's dabbled in wearing garments that could on the surface be described as women's wear. We, you and I, were talking, and I got the sense that you felt a little bit of two minds on this form of gender expression. And I'm wondering if you can break that down for me. Where I feel about it now, I think Bad Bunny looks cunt. I think, you know, he ate that. Um, 
But, you know, there is always the question of immediate, like when you first see someone who is a cis male um, in gender fluid clothing, um, you always think, is that queer bait? You know, you always have that question of like, what is actually like, are you wearing this just for the fact that you want to be seen as, as different? Or are you wearing this because this is actually like your authentic self? Um, but I do think like, from like, just, just, watching interviews and, and hearing hearing Bad Bunny speak, I do think that like, you know, he his gender expression is very fluid. Um, and also considering like watching him on the carpet and like just like watching how he like moves and and expresses expresses himself within his own gender expression, um, like you can kind of you can see that like the garments are not wearing him. You know, he is wearing, he is wearing that Louis, like, he is wearing that Louis Vuitton cunt, bitch. Like, he does look very effortless. Um, but there, there is also a part of me that's like, the same thing of, of the conversation of whether or not someone's gender, gender expression is up for debate. You know, I feel like that is also something that I, that I think I had to kind of unlearn within my own self. But what would you do? And I, and I love this topic because I think it's so fascinating because I'm not really sure how to feel about it. It tends to be case by case. But I'm wondering, say it wasn't a bad bunny, right? Say it was someone who identified publicly as cis and heterosexual and some stylist came to the shoot and was like, we have this gorgeous Bottega Veneta skirt. We want you to put it on. And the celebrity does not care at all and is like, just whatever you tell me to wear, I'll wear. They put it on with no thought or intention. It's not rooted at all in who they are or expression. It's purely the fantasy that the stylist and the photographer were trying to create. Is that problematic in your mind? Yes, you're baiting. Like you are, you're not really, you're not really expressing yourself. But I also like, I think with the same, because two things can be true, with that same idea, um, it where like if a cis het like man was like given a skirt, he might find something within himself while wearing that skirt, you know, which I which I I'm like, bitch, live your fucking life, you better eat, bitch, you know, like in that sense, I'm like work. Um, which is why I feel like there there are two sides to to that, that conversation. Like the idea of gatekeeping, you know, gender expression um, seems counterintuitive. We know that garments themselves do not have gender, but there is an ascribed gender to many garments just culturally. It, let's say a bunch of cis hetero guys saw some cis hetero celebrity in the skirt. And then as a result, it became this hu huge trend. Are they co-opting are they co-opting that? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. I feel like, like my immediate intention is to say, that's not for you, you know? Like my, like my immediate thought is, no, you can't wear that. Um, but then I'm like, who, who am I to say that, bitch? I don't think it's taking away from my gender expression at all. I think you are stepping into something that, that you might have not thought of. Yeah, no, it makes me think a lot about 
Sean Mendez and this assumption that so many queer people have that he's gay and in the closet without giving him the mindset of, first of all, we have no idea how he identifies and we won't know until when and if he chooses to identify some way publicly. But also there seems to be this assumption from so many people that like, we know something that he doesn't know. And it's like, who knows what he knows? Who knows who he is and and, and, and the level of authenticity with which he's living his life? I think there's a, a massive way in which many people assume that because because of societal standards, when this person hasn't done something, that that must mean that they are suppressing it or hiding it in some way, when it's just that maybe they have not given us access, explicit access to that information. It's like, it's hard to, to like have the conversation too, especially with people in the public eye, because you know, people wanna know everything. <laughs> and if you don't tell them, they'll assume things, but then sometimes it's like, but they don't have the right to know everything. So you kind of have to let them assume things. It's tricky. Now, you are in this buzzy film, as we mentioned, Fire Island. And I remembered when you were interviewed live at the Pride Parade, which by the way, I have to say, I don't even know if this is online anywhere, Tomas, but you and this interviewer live from the parade, 95 degree heat, she was not ready for you. Like she was just doing crowd work and no one was really like engaging with her because I had it on in the background. And I'm just like, she could not get a good interview to save her life. She kept going up to the sides, putting the mic in people's faces. Where are you from? Where are you from? They would give one sentence. And then you appear on the screen and they proceed, if I remember, to play a game with you where they were like pulling garments out of a bag and like asking if you would wear them, I believe on Fire Island which fortunately for you, it's like you were ready to have fun. Now I bring up that interview because at the very end of the interview, she said, where can we see you next? And you said that you were wanting to be booked and not yet finding those opportunities. And you advise people watching, if they know of something, get in touch with you. I think there's this uh, belief that many people hold because we've seen an actor have a successful role in a film and especially you, you know, as I mentioned up top, you're incredibly buzzy. The assumption is everybody is chomping at the bit to get you in something, but it sounds like it has not been the case so far. What has it been like for you getting back on the hamster wheel that is acting? <laughs> okay, so like I use the analogy and I think this is like an actual thing. Like the like the prettiest girl doesn't get doesn't get invited to prom. The fact that I have gotten so much buzz from this movie and I'm still, you know, on unemployment is hilarious. <laughs> this valley in my life um, that has come from such a high high is just a moment in time. And eventually, you know, we will pick things back up. But for right now, I am definitely in my socialite era and it's giving event, event, event red carpet, which I'm so here for, you know, I'm not complaining because a bitch loves to turn a look. But I am very excited to, you know, dig my dig my teeth into another project, into another, in, into another role, into another TV series. The payment needs to be paid. <laughs> but also like, there are just so many roles I want to see you in, so many opportunities that I am hopeful that will come your way. I mean, 
I appreciate your perspective on this and, and thank you for being real about it because I feel like so many people uh, in the industry give off the veneer that like they're just constantly booked and busy and it's very okay to say like, listen, I am not as booked and busy as I should be. To me, it's all about that difference where it's like, it's not that you're not booked and busy. You should be booked and something, something, is, something wrong is happening that is preventing that. There's a blockage at the moment and so it's all about just getting it unblocked. It's not, has nothing to do with the, the lack of talent, but I have to say like, it's just disappointing from us, your fans who want to support you in your next endeavor. And we're, we're eager for, for when that happens. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm excited for, for whatever is next as well. What this lull has taught me, if not anything, is that I, my future is in my own hands. And if, if the opportunities and the offers are not hitting my line, then might as well create them myself. And those are some capable and well-manicured hands, if I do say so myself. Thank you. Before I let you go, I wanted to bring in one more of your Fire Island co-stars who has a question for you. Hi, Tomas. It's James. Just wanted to swing through and say I love you. And you're an icon. And speaking of your iconography, you have become such a beacon of hope and light to so many people, myself included. There are so many young queers all over the world looking up to you and feeling affirmed and seen and loved and powerful because of the space you're taking up. And I was wondering if there was somebody who did that for you when you were small, if there was a moment in media or an actor or an artist, perhaps a piece of culture, as Matt and Bowen might say, that made you feel powerful and seen when you were younger. And lastly, I want to say, what was that? Okay. Okay. James. I am screaming. What was that? That is honestly one of my one of my answers of like someone who I, I looked up to because of their unapologetic authenticity. It's Wendy Williams. And you know what? I, what was that? Okay, James. Wendy is and will always be Wendy Williams with he and unapologetically bitch. Um, but just being able to watch her like every every morning in that fucking big purple chair showed me that like I was also capable of being my authentic self. It's interesting we're talking about this idea of like being of two minds and I feel like you have to be when it comes to Wendy, where it's like you can recognize that some of the things that come out of her mouth are absolutely inappropriate and incredible, amazing, iconographic. Like she has provided so much culture to us over the last 13 years of her show. And then the the decade before that on the radio. But yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, I, I talk to some people sometimes and I mention my love of Wendy and they're like, well, she did this thing or she did that thing. And that's like a roadblock for them. And I'm like, you're missing out on all this woman has to offer because you're getting stuck. And it's like, just get unstuck. Keep going. There's so much land on the great Wendy Williams. It's so funny to say, but Wendy has inspired me to be my authentic self. You are someone who believes in the power of energy and manifestation, both in life and in career. So what is a role that either exists that you would like to take on or a role that you would like to see yourself? Let's manifest it right now in this moment. I think, okay, in terms of something, you know, out like in the world, I would love to play a superhero or like a super villain. Like, I want to be a part of the Marvel Cinematic Cunt universe. You'd get my ass in the seats for that, I'll tell you that much. When it comes to, you know, the perfect the perfect world, I think, or the perfect role, um, it's, it's a role that I 
I don't think has been created because it's a role that's in my mind that I think I have to put on paper. I don't know. I think, and I think that role is my story. It's scary and it's daunting because it's new. And, you know, there are always the, the self-doubt of it all. But I, I'm, I'm looking forward to stepping into my spotlight even more. I want to encourage everyone listening to go and follow Tomas. And I'm not just saying that in the way that I usually say, go and follow the guests. I'm saying that because, you know, actors, especially increasingly in this world, casting directors and whatnot, they look to social media following. It's ridiculous. I mean, this system, I don't know how it can continue to hold, but it is the reality of the business at present. So if you're listening right now and want to know more about Tomas, if you don't, I don't know what, I don't know what wavelength you're on, but granted that you do, Go on Instagram and follow Tomas. Show your support. Let, what did they say? Like, comment, heart, retweet, whatever. But like, we need to see Tomas on our screens. If we want civilization to continue to progress, we need Tomas on our screens, right? Not to put it lightly, you know, but like, uh, I, I really do believe in you. And I'm so proud of you for the year that you've had. I look forward to your future. And thank you so much for taking the time. to Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Thank you, and thank you for helping to campaign for my next gig. I really appreciate it. <laughs> listen, listen. I mean, listen, it's not an if, it's a when. We are destined mm. for greatness. Well, thank you again for your time, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Mm-mm. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. <laughs> Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on.